Okay, well, I think we'll make a start. So, um, welcome to everyone. I'm just going to do the housekeeping things before we get going. Um, that we're not expecting any sort of fire drill. Um, if there is an alarm, then uh, these side exits are where you, you go through, the marked with the green um, signs. Um, for the lunch, it's a buffet, and can everyone here at the back? Yes, great. Um, there's a buffet lunch, so it's going to be easiest if we do it in sort of batches, and we'll, we'll kind of try and organise that um, a bit nearer the time. There is internet. Uh, it's on the Swiss, Swisscom um, uh, provider, and there's no password, so if, if you want the internet. Great. Okay, so... Um, Thank you so much for coming, and uh, this is the first day of its kind, and I hope very much that it'll become a regular event. Uh, and what I'm going to do in the sort of 15 minutes that I've got to start off is just sort of try and set the scene, really, um, and then throughout the day you'll be hearing recurring themes, and we've aimed it very much at uh, patients and carers as, as well as healthcare professionals, not just um, specialised neurologists. I want to start off by thanking the MND Association. Is Karen here? I think Karen was going. Yeah, there she is at the back there. So the MND Association have been extremely generous in sponsoring this event, and they're very, very keen to, to make people aware that they regard PLS as very much part of their, uh, their mission. Um, so Steve Bell very generously uh, facilitated the sponsorship, and Karen's um, in attendance here as well. And actually, you'll imagine that the logistics of organising an event where we can have lots of wheelchair access, um, uh, wheelchair accessible facilities, was actually quite challenging. And we couldn't have done this without Hilary Shaw, who's here somewhere, um, and our specialist nurse Rachel, and our occupational therapist Jenny, who uh, uh, is on maternity leave at the moment. So thank you very much to them. And I want to particularly thank two external speakers who made their own way here through their enthusiasm for, uh, for this condition. <clears throat> and you're going to be hearing a, a fantastic lecture later from Mary Kay Floater, who really is the leading US person working at the National Institute of Health in Washington. Um, and she's really uh, studied more about PLS than, than I think anyone, and has an enormous cohort of patients that she's studied. And she's going to talk to us about her natural history study, and uh, it's really wonderful that she, she could come over and uh, come all this way. Um, and uh, She managed to see a bit of Oxford yesterday, but it's, uh, it's not a long enough visit, I don't think. And Chris McDermott is um, a senior researcher from the University of Sheffield, and uh, is Chris here yet? I haven't seen Chris. No, he, he's probably joining us shortly, um, and he's going to be talking to us about genetics and also symptom management. So a big thank you to the patients and, and those that look after them for coming today, because I realise that it's, it's quite an effort, and, and I'm sure some of you have travelled from quite some distance. What we want to do is have two question and answer sessions, um, one on the sort of research and the biology of the disease, which we'll have in the, in the first half of the day. Um, and if you could fill in the questions that you've got on your sheets in your pack, if you've got a question, and then um, I suggest that perhaps if we... Uh, arrange for those to get to the back of the room, and then we can use those to, to, to sort of um, make that session work a bit later on. Um, and there's a session in the afternoon about symptom management. Um, what we, we thought was um, the right thing to do um, was not to make this all about trying to recruit people into studies and research. We're very passionate about research, that's not the purpose of today. 
Um, we want to tell you about research, and we want to give people the opportunity, if they want to find out more, to let us know later, and we can let them know about various research projects that are going on. So if you want to hear about research, you're not committing to taking part in anything, then leave your email at the back. It'll only be um, used by our group and people who um, uh, are present today who are doing research. Um, and as I say, you're not committing to taking part in anything, but it's a way to be informed about what's going on. So I've been doing bits and pieces on PLS patients for about 10 years, and, and it was a number of patients that really inspired me um, to feel that PLS was being forgotten, actually. And this letter actually appeared, I think, about five years ago in Thumbprint, which is the MND Association's magazine. And th this patient was saying that they were diagnosed with PLS, it's called an open letter to researchers and neurologists, and, and that she'd been very keen to be involved in research, but then felt that there wasn't enough feedback in the research, and it was difficult to know um, where things were moving, and also that people weren't always focusing on the symptoms that really bothered them, and a couple of symptoms which I think you'll hear as a recurring theme today. Symptoms like difficulty with balance, which is often a very early symptom, and I think we don't know enough about why that is. And also symptoms like exaggerated startle, which again, I don't think always gets into a lot of the textbooks and uh, the information sheets. I should say there is an information sheet in your pack, which the MND Association have just produced, and I had a little bit of input into, um, uh, just explaining what PLS is. If you've got any suggestions about that, then do put those as well on your, uh, your pieces of paper. So it finishes this letter saying, if this plea falls on unresponsive ears, I'd ask that researchers and neurologists take the time to research the actual experience of their patients. So here you are, and this is your day to try and um, make sure that we're doing the right things. A little bit of anatomy. The whole of neurology, as I talk to my medical students, really you could design two textbooks of neurology. You could have the sort of central nervous system neurologists and a peripheral nervous system neurologist. And actually, you wouldn't really have much of a problem. There would be very, very few diseases where you'd have to go and see two neurologists. You could see one or the other. And when we're dealing with the motor system, it's, it's a, the classic system, really, which pervades... Ah, there's Chris. Welcome. Um, it's a classic system that pervades the whole of the, the, the body and the nervous system. And it transcends, really, the central and peripheral components. And I think that's one of the things that, that makes motor neuron disease in its wider sense, more of a puzzle. And we have these central nerves, which I'm just showing here in red, down from the motor cortex of the brain, down the spinal cord, and then these peripheral nerves in green here, which go out to various muscles. And everything that we, we, we see in these diseases is reflected by different involvement of these nerve populations. And if we take the commonest form of MND, which is called ALS, and I'll come back to that terminology in a second, then we find that all these systems become affected. And right from the brain, in terms of thinking and behavior, we're realizing that that's more involved in, 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 in ALS, through to speech and swallowing problems, difficulty with secretions, nutrition, emotionality, difficulty in controlling one's response to feeling sad or happy. Respiratory insufficiency is ultimately um, what makes ALS a very life-shortening condition, and disability and pain in the limbs. Now, if we contrast that with PLS, a lot of things go back into grey because they're less of an important aspect. And this is open for debate, but I think this is just my, my sense, really, that actually 
we, we're learning a little bit more about the wider effects on the brain, but they don't seem to be a major feature. Actually, nutrition is not usually a major obstacle. It, eating is difficult and slow sometimes, but in terms of actually getting enough food and nutrition, it's not a big problem. And communication, again, it's not to the same extent. These things will come up, and we can talk about them more as the day goes on. Secretion is certainly still a difficulty. Stiffness becomes more of a difficulty in PLS than we see in ALS. Respiratory insufficiency, again, fades as a major driver of the disease. Startle and balance both appear, which we don't really see to a great extent in ALS, and urinary frequency, bladder symptoms, which right back to the original times of Charcot were felt to not be part of, PLS, of ALS, now come to the fore in this condition. And before Charcot, who I'll talk about in a minute, he was a very famous French neurologist in the late 1800s, it was all about the lower motor neuron. It's all about the periphery, and so right back in the early 1800s, it was patients like this that caught the eye of neurologists, lots of muscle wasting um, and floppiness, and early sort of neurologists like Charles Bell and John Crubillier, these, these um, people described this lower motor neuron progressive muscular atrophy. Now, Charcot was a, a bit of a showman, and it really is the, 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 the godfather of the whole of neurology, really. And he used to have these wonderful sort of meetings where he would bring a patient along. This was a patient who he labelled as having a hysterical illness, as it was termed in those days. And this is sort of great and the good. I mean, it's just desperately sad that the underrepresentation of women here. But um, these were unfortunately not very enlightened times. This was a gentleman's kind of club at that stage. I'm pleased to say more than half of the neurologists in the country now are women. But they would come along and they'd debate these sort of cases in a very old-fashioned way. And Charcot's genius was really to say, well, that in ALS, in this new disease that I've described, there's both lower and upper motor neuron involvement. And we can see the muscle wasting that comes from lower motor neuron involvement. And we can see the scarring, the sclerosis in the spinal cord in people with upper motor neuron involvement. And you don't need to read all the text, but what he was saying here was that wherever this lateral sclerosis was, it would lead to a sort of stiffness and he recognised that would occur in MS, that's what the term for MS was, disseminated sclerosis, in strokes, cerebral hemiplegia, transverse myelitis, a sort of viral inflammation of the spinal cord, and then he just put D, lastly, in the primary sclerosis of the lateral columns without muscular atrophy. And so I think that's probably a recognition that there were these unusual rare patients where there was just this lateral sclerosis. Now, it's going to be a, a series of photos of grey men um, from around the world, um, none of whom look as though they're very having much of a fun time, but um, such was the, uh, the serious times. Um, Wilhelm Erb was a very famous German neurologist. I think, really, he's, we have to give him the credit for the first sort of descriptions, and this just means um, on a little-known spinal um, symptom complex here, and he really described some of the early cases of PLS. I think William Spiller, the Canadian uh, neurologist, is also credited in the turn of the 20th century with describing, again, eight studies, and he was able to look at the brain and spinal cord of these patients and notice this primary degeneration of the pyramidal tracts. And what the pyramidal tracts means is those central nerve tracts coming down from the brain down the spinal cord. They're called pyramidal because they pass through a part of the brainstem which is called the pyramids. Now, Pierre-Marie, um, again, you don't need to read all of this, was simply another character around this time who was 
recognising that Herb, and a few months later it's also very important to get the order correct, Herb before Charcot, um, so the Germans won this particular uh, discovery, and he was recognising that these two characters had discovered an unusual spasmodic paresis, so stiffness, a spinal cord syndrome. But, in fact, he was starting to question, really, that a single case, in fact, occurred in which primary degeneration of the pyramidal tract existed. Had it ever been shown, really? And this is a theme that still persists today. That it, is this a real thing? Is this something that is separate, a different disease? And Gowers is a very famous British neurologist, um, and he says at the end here, pathologists have been since, since been searching for confirmation of this hypothesis, for evidence that the symptoms in their pure form, without muscle wasting, depend on degeneration limited to the pyramidal tract. So he's recognising that neurologists are trying to prove that this syndrome of PLS is occurring in the absence of muscle wasting, and it's a separate condition. And finally, one of my heroes, Samuel Kinnear Wilson, um, wrote an amazing textbook of neurology, and this is worth talking about in a little bit more detail. And what he says here is, divergent views are still held in regard to so-called primary lateral sclerosis, the, spasmotic, the spastic spinal paralysis of Herb. Some consider it belongs to a separate class from Charcot's disease, taking presence or absence of muscular atrophy for the criteria, so whether or not someone's got muscle wasting is the defining thing. But he said that since pure atrophy often coexists with some of this stiffness, only disclosed after someone's died, the spasticity might, and wasting might represent the opposite extreme of the condition. And he goes on to say that he can't really put it together. He's not sure really whether this is part of the same spectrum as the whole of, as, as ALS or whether it's a completely separate thing. And he said, if it's permitted, primary lateral stress becomes a variant of the disease without involvement of the lower emerging neurons, which is how we kind of recognise it today. Now, as we move forward into the 40s, this is just a nice paper, really, which encapsulates how people were thinking about this. And what they recognised was in the middle here, you've got most people with Charcot-type ALS, bits of upper and lower motor involvement. But they recognised that over on the side here, there were people with just upper motor involvement who didn't have muscle twitches and wasting. And over on the other end, people who had mainly wasting. <coughs> And this was really recognising this spectrum that we still have today. And actually also noting on one of these graphs here, it's the speed of progress, this one in the middle, that the speed of progress was slower at the two ends. Now just as an aside, um, Charles Mills was an, a US neurologist who described an even more unusual type of PLS, which only affected one half of someone's body. So they appeared to have a stroke-like illness, but then it got worse, and it progressed. They got more and more weak down one side. Now, these patients are extremely rare. It's not a separate disease, I don't think. I think it's just a variant. It's a clinical term. So Mill's syndrome doesn't mean a special disease, as we know it at the moment, but it means a particular rare type. And, of course, it's interesting. If we do scans on patients who just have half their body involved, what happens? Well, when we look for evidence of inflammation, nerves that are inflamed in the brain in patients with unilateral symptoms, we find that the brain lights up just on the opposite side of the brain, because the left side of the brain controls the right body and the right brain controls the left body. And we just find that signal in the side of the brain opposite. So that's an interesting, an interesting point. You're going to hear more about this, but this is really the definitive paper 
and I think Dr. Anzolga will talk more about the pathology. Um, but this came out in 1992 from a Canadian group and really put this disease on the map. And this defined PLS pathologically. So to finish off, we have this natural history of ALS. We have this survival curve, which is very, very difficult for patients. Half of our patients with ALS will have died within three to four years of onset of their symptoms. There's no other disease really this devastating. It's absolutely dreadful. And there's Lou Gehrig, very typical patient. And we recognize that another half of patients will go out to 20 years or even longer for Stephen Hawking. And I, don't, I think it's very clear to all of us in this room that Stephen Hawking does not have PLS. This is the decline in people's function. This is just simply a disability scale and showing you that everybody declines at different rates with ALS. But the rate at which they decline is rather fixed for an individual. So the rate of change in a person is the same. It stays the same. If it's fast, it's fast. If it's slow, it's slow. And of course we recognize that in PLS. And this is the curve really for PLS patients. By definition, PLS patients mostly go into this second decade and then there's a much longer tail of this curve. But this is the thing that we'll return to, I think, as a theme throughout the day. But one of the problems is that we also know that people with lots of upper motor neuron involvement who have ALS also seem to have a slower progression. So is it something about damage to the upper motor neuron that somehow protects the lower motor neuron from the damage? That would be some speculation on my part. But this is the problem that we know that some patients with lots of upper motion involvement actually turn out later to have ALS. Even though it's still slow, it's not as slow as PLS. And the question is, where do we draw that line? And currently, and I think you'll hear more about this from uh, Dr. Uh, Floater, currently we don't like to commit to a diagnosis of PLS until really somebody's had four years of symptoms to be sure about that. And that's a difficult thing to tell someone. So my final slide is just some recurring themes to think about as the day goes on. Is PLS part of the spectrum of ALS? I don't think we'll necessarily come to that answer today, but is it something separate? How, does you, how do you define a disease? I think Professor Torbell will talk more about that. How can we reach PLS patients more? There's a national registry that Professor Talbot and MRL Chalvey in London are setting up, um, and I to my understanding, it'll have PLS patients included. There's a big Facebook um, group, which I heard about just moments ago, of 400 patients plus uh, around the world with PLS. But actually, if we did do a trial, if we started to develop new drugs, how are we going to measure differences? How are we going to measure change? Because this is a disease of changing slowly. Of course, we'd like it to be reversed immediately, but we can't expect that from a drug. What we can expect is that we get a slow improvement or at least a halting. That's a big challenge, so we need things we can measure. And I'll just leave you with a sort of optimistic thought, which I always like to, to sort of highlight, really, that it does strike me that if, if we can build a one-ton machine, we can put it up into space and send it 50 million miles and get it to land on a planet with using a sort of special retro crane that drops it onto the ground, and then get it to take a photo of itself and send that back. If that's possible, then I really can't believe that MND in its wider form, including PLS, I can't believe that's impossible for us to sort out. So, enjoy the day, and I'll hand you on to uh, Professor Talbot.